Welcome to episode 16 of the Honesty Hour podcast. We're a podcast that is here to talk about the importance of mental health and facilitate honest conversations about it. Our mission here today is to sort of make the uncomfortable conversations comfortable. And we're here at USC to just make sure that we have a nice environment where people and students feel safe enough to seek for help and just make or destigmatize the environment when it comes to mental health. I'm James Lai. And I'm Bianna Eusebio, and we are your new hosts for this year. All right. Well, today we're joined here with Patrick Cates, our guest speaker, who has worked at USC for nearly 15 years and is the Associate Dean for Undergraduate Programs at Marshall, where he also serves as one of Marshall's DEI Fellows. In addition to his duties as Associate Dean, he also teaches classes in organizational behavior and leadership and as an adjunct faculty member at Marshall and at Rossier. He also taught BU8304 to our podcast producer, TK, who is currently behind the camera. And uh, if you haven't taken that class, she highly recommends you take it with Patrick. Good morning, Patrick. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks for inviting me to the podcast. I'm really pleased to be here. Yeah, it's a really important area uh, that we need to talk about. So um, I'm delighted to be contributing to that. Well, thank you so much for, for joining us today. But uh, before we go into the questions, let's go around and just share one thing uh, we're grateful for this week, since we know expressing gratitude can really help improve our physical and mental health. So I guess I'll start first. I would say one thing I'm grateful for this week would be the next couple of weeks, um, which I know can be a very stressful time for students, um, but I'm really grateful to have that opportunity to really challenge myself academically, intellectually, and I think in a couple of weeks, especially we're on winter break and enjoying our break, um, we'd look back on these experiences and feel very proud of ourselves and uh, how far we've come. That's actually very amazing. Mine is quite similar, actually. You know, I'm very grateful that now we're ending the semester and I've had a semester long of new experiences, new education, and I'm just excited to be able to use all the new things that I've learned in my future life. Would you like to share something you're grateful for? Sure, I'll share a trivial thing and then I'll share a more serious thing. The trivial thing is that I'm grateful that England are still in the World Cup, <laughs> um, at least until Sunday when we play Senegal. So we'll have to see what happens. Um, on a more serious note, I'm I'm grateful to have been given the opportunity to be the Associate Dean at Marshall. Um, I've uh, had a long history at Marshall and it's really nice to be back as a full-time uh, leader there because um, I I feel I can really make an impact to the lives of students and staff uh, and even faculty uh, a beneficial impact and so that that's exciting and I'm very grateful for it. Thank you so much for being here at Marshall. We're all really grateful to have such a great professor like Absolutely. you. Oh it's too kind. <laughs> <laughs> so now we're just gonna get into the questions sure, that we sure. have for you. Yeah. The first one being how is mental health important to you and how do you how does it affect your life? Well mental health has has been important to me as uh, for as long as I can remember. Um, and that might sound a little unusual, like what, what's a kid, uh, what would a kid be thinking about mental health for? My parents were both uh, volunteers for an organisation in the UK called Samaritans, and that's an organisation that offers telephone uh, support, 24-hour telephone support to people with emotional problems, people who are, who are fe feeling suicidal. And so they were volunteers for many, many years, and so I just remember 
that my parents are always caring deeply about people's mental health, whether that was their friends' mental health or, or strangers' mental health. And actually, I went on to train as a volunteer for that service myself in London uh, when I when I uh, grew up. Uh, so that's and then I became a, a I did a psychology as an undergrad, and I thought I was going to become a psychologist. Then uh, things took a little different turn. But that's so really, it's been foundational for me the importance of mental mental health and. Over the years, I don't mind sharing that I've I've struggled with depression and anxiety myself since um, since I was a student, actually, since I was an undergrad. So I have a really um, a, a really strong sense of empathy for students who are going through their own mental health struggles, and that interest in mental health has stayed with me, and is now foundational to my approach to teaching and my approach to leadership. Well, I would just like to say thank you so much for sharing that about your life. Um, and, you know, it really brings up an important point as to how, like, even people who grow up knowing about mental health, you know, it's still very difficult to tackle. Um, and, you know, that's why conversations like these are just so important. Yeah, it's it's it, it's uh, it's very important to talk about. And actually, the um, what you'll find is that uh, so many people who are in men in the mental health uh, uh, I wouldn't call it industry, but who are in the mental who are in mental health professions uh, are are driven there because of their own struggles, um, and they they kind of they they appreciate maybe the help they received from a, from a counselor or a psychologist or a therapist, and then that uh, that drives them to to paying it forward and to helping others, and that's certainly some something that I've experienced. I I know how pivotal certain people in my life were to helping me get through my own challenges. And I want to extend that to to others, and and like you say, keep the conversation going. Right, and I think just to latch on something else you mentioned, I think that idea of generational health, I think, is really important too. Whether it's mental health or physical health, I think having parents, having friends, having family in general, who uh, really support dealing with these mental health challenges, can really go a really long way in terms of developing those skills to cope with those challenges throughout your life and yeah and I can't see how that works in the opposite direction too when you know especially in some particular cultures those mental health stigmas can often carry on you know for decades and decades so I think that's also one thing we should definitely address that's an excellent point I and and actually it, it, England is is somewhat famous for being quite a repressed culture and so mm -hmm. it was it was actually unusual I would say that I grew up in a family where my parents were were so uh, engaged in in helping people with their mental health struggles there's a real uh, not so much anymore um, but but certainly when I was growing up which was primarily in the 80s there was a real reluctance for people to talk about their mental health challenges and especially for men actually and I know that's still an issue today but you were somehow seen as weak uh, you weren't manly you weren't you weren't doing your job as a man if you cried or if you confessed to feeling depressed or anxious and that that stigma is definitely an issue in 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 English and British culture, and I know it's an issue in other cultures around the world too. So um, if you have family where that where that bucks that trend, then that's that's huge for sure. For sure. Well, moving on to our next question, um, why do you think compassion and gratitude are so important to not only students but also teachers and business leaders? And how can we practice compassion and gratitude on a regular basis? And can you share some ways you do that? Sure. So, so compassion and gratitude, um, I, th I think they're, they're behaviors that, that are just the right behaviors to adopt. So f just from a kind of very broad human standpoint, mm -hmm. it's just the right thing to do. 
express gratitude for things that, that you're given and show kindness and care for people and help mm. people. Like that, that's just being a good human being as far as I'm concerned. But the research supports the benefits, uh, the benefit of compassion, the benefit of gratitude. There are so many studies out there that show that both compassion and gratitude can lead to increased uh, physical health, improved physical health, improved mental health, greater empathy, improved relationships, improved job performance. You know, the list goes on and on and on. The, the research is unequivocal on that. So, so it's kind of a no-brainer that compassion and gratitude um, are, are almost like superpowers to have as leaders, as students, as professors. Um, and so I've, I always try to lead with both compassion uh, and gratitude in, uh, as a professor and as a, and as a leader. Um, I think I, I've actually seen it for myself how beneficial being compassionate uh, can be for uh, for a team of employees or for a classroom of students. Um, people just want to be heard and felt cared for and understood, and that doing that for people brings the best out in people. So why why wouldn't you? Uh, that that's that's how important compassion is, and and the same with gratitude. Um, you know, you can really unlock uh, unlock people's potential if you express to them how grateful you are for their contributions. It motivates them, makes them feel good. Uh, makes them feel connected so it, it as far as i'm concerned this is just it's just it's just a given you, you you should be doing both of those things and if you aren't you need to ask yourself why uh, as for like daily practice um uh, I, I just talked about how i kind of lead with that in 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 the class uh, in classes i lead with it in the workplace i think from a personal standpoint i i i'm, I'm not very disciplined about having like a daily a daily anything actually <laughs> Um, I, I'm not I'm not good at doing kind of daily mindfulness or or daily workouts or anything. You know that's that's just who I am. But with gratitude, I do take time to um, to pause, particularly when I'm struggling, if I'm feeling kind of worried about a situation or upset about a situation. I do try and jump out of that and think about what I'm grateful for mm-hmm. uh, in the moment. So it's a little bit more reactive than maybe I'd like it to be. I'd like it to be more proactive. But in those moments, I feel it can be quite calming to reflect on what I, what I do have um, th- and that, that definitely helps helps kind of stabilize me. I think that's an amazing thing to do. I, I know I personally have difficulty practicing gratitude, not compassion, but more of just understanding that, you know, instead of looking at all of the negative aspects of life, I should try to focus on the things that I am grateful for and like just the positive things in life. But I feel like a lot of students, and correct me if I'm wrong, might sometimes think too positively to the point where they are ignoring their issues. So what do you have to say about that? Just kind of avoiding, you know, ignoring the things that you're going through, but still maintaining a gratitude attitude. Yeah, I think I think that I think it's just about finding uh, I think it's just about finding balance. Um, I think being being too positive and Pollyanna-ish is is a problem um and then being too too pessimistic um and and negative is also problematic and you're likely to kind of go down a kind of negative mental health path if you if you get stuck in 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 those modes of thinking so just just having a having realism with a with with a dash of optimism i think is a good is a good place to be and that's a really good point about about how it's difficult to when you're in the moment and you're really struggling it can be difficult to step out and and appreciate what you're grateful for it it is difficult um what's 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 even more difficult is hearing someone else tell you 
what you have to be thankful for. One of the worst things you can say to someone who is, who say has just been dumped or has just got a bad grade in the final or who has uh, lost their job or, or has gone through some other kind of um, you know, traumatic experience, the worst thing you can say is, well, maybe, maybe there'll be another job or you know, you'll find someone else. Maybe they weren't that great after all. No one wants to hear that when they're suffering. What they want to hear is, um, how are you feeling? Uh, that sounds awful. Tell me more. They just want to be heard and understood. Mm. So, uh, yeah, it's important, I would say, um, appreciate uh, what you're grateful for yourself, but don't try and impose that on other people. Let them appreciate what they're grateful for in their own time. You're, you're not going to get them to feel grateful uh, on your terms. Right. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember this. I'm taking 304 now, and there's this, if I'm not mistaken, there's this idea of like you stress and positive stress. I think it's important to really... I guess identify where when those moments are and learning how we can best deal with them. And one thing, another thing that just crossed my mind was remember we talked about like primary and secondary appraisals. So in our last episode, we actually talked with a clinical psychologist as well, and we talked about how a lot of experiences are objectively perhaps not inherently good or bad, positive or negative. It's really the emotions that we attach to them and you know, if we do perceive them as good, bad, helpful or not. So I think that's something that's also really important to think about. Yeah, and I, I, I think that's that's an important thing to bear in mind when uh, when you're trying to empathize with people effectively. Um, everybody has their own experienced reality. Right. And anything you do to try and minimize that mm. is not going to serve them well. Um, so yeah, it might be that maybe someone's pet lizard died and and you might not see what's so terrible about that but let's just say this person had developed a really close bond with that seemingly small insignificant animal mm. it's not for you to say that oh it's, it's trivial mm. it, the impact it has on that person is what counts and if they're having a strong emotional reaction to it that's what as an as a person expressing empathy that's what you should be focused on is is their feeling and their response and how you can help them manage that right absolutely well well, that was amazing. Um, so we're going to move on to more on stress. And, you know, students struggle a lot when it comes to stress, especially when challenged academically. So we want to know what you do as a professor and what you might suggest to other professors to do um, to help students manage their stress. Yeah, I, I, what, 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 I, what I try to do from day one is uh, to dial down the, the pressure uh, in the classroom. Um, I know that everyone coming into the classroom uh, on some level is experiencing some anxiety, some worry about how it's going to go. Uh, it's, you know, am I, am, I, am I good enough for this class? Uh, you know, I, is, the, is this professor going to like me? Uh, th there are so many competing concerns you have when you walk into a classroom. Am I going to understand the material? Uh, are my group mates going to think I'm, I'm competent? You know, all of those things are flooding through the mind when you walk into a class, especially if it's your first class from coming from high school and so my 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 job as i see it when i go into a class is just to um it's just to relax everybody and the way i do that is by initially showing some vulnerability and humility and show the class immediately that i'm just a regular human being and i don't know all the answers i'm not some like expert who you should be putting up on a pedestal i'm just someone who happens to have the job of standing in front of a group of people uh, help them, to help them learn. That's all I'm there for. And I usually tell an anecdote or two about how I've, 
I've stumbled and fallen and, and how I've been worried about things and how I've had really stressful situations and have felt overwhelmed. So I normalize all of that and I say, look, it, it, it's not just you, it's everybody. We all are prone to feeling this way. Um, let's just do our best job to, to dial it down while we're in here. Um, let's, let's just make this an open and safe place where we can all be our authentic selves and commune, build a community together. And setting out that kind of foundation um, has, has worked pretty well uh, in all the classes I've taught. In fact, last night was the last class I taught this, um, this semester for uh, one of the doctoral programs at Rossier, the Organisational Change and Leadership Programme. It's an online programme. And I was blown away at the end by the, the, the comments that, that students made, their kind of summary comments about the class. They were all really focused on how grateful they were that I'd created this space for them to come and just not stress, but just learn in a relaxed, uh, a relaxed, fun and positive environment. And I'd given them leeway on deadlines. I'd, I'd, I'd really dialed down all the pressure about grades. And they said that that was, that was the best thing about the class, not so much the content or anything else. It was just having a place where they felt they could come and be safe and learn productively. So that, that is what I aim to do. So that's what professors can and should do. Um, and then I can't remember what the second part of the question was, <laughs> if there was one. Was it about particular sort of strategies for, for dealing with stress as students? Or? Yeah, like just how do you help students manage their stress in general? Yeah, I, th I think um, I, th I, I always invite students to come and talk to me um, whenever, they, uh, whenever they're experiencing anything. Uh, and many students have done, and I, I welcome that. I love that. Um, and I find that, you know, I kind of put into put into practice those active listening skills I learned all those years ago when I was training for the Samaritans for their the support, um, telephone support line. Um, when I was volunteering for that organization, um, every like you do a four hour shift every week throughout that shift, I take numerous calls from people who were uh, very often suicidal and not just having suicidal ideation, but actually on the verge of doing something about it. And they called as a kind of last roll of the dice. Hey, you've got to help me. I'm, I'm, I'm about to jump off a bridge, like literally. I had calls like that. And I would, the, the call would start with someone in that, in that position. And I would uh, offer that compassionate, empathic ear, ask questions, show, show sensitivity, show that I really was listening and caring. And after 30 minutes, I hadn't solved that person's problems because I could never do that. But just by listening compassionately and empathically, uh, I was able to reduce their pain in the moment. And people would get to the end of the call and say something like, you know, thanks for, thanks for listening. I, 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 I can go on for another day. Thanks. I, I, I'll go to bed now. And, and so if you, can, if you can achieve that effect just by listening, you know, think of how many situations you can apply that to. And so I apply that same mentality when I'm dealing with, with students who are in distress, just offering a place to, for those students to listen and be heard and be understood. And that in itself is often enough to dial down the stress significantly. Um, and then beyond that, I just encourage students to do those other things that, that people know very well, help manage stress, exercise, even if it's going out for a, even if you're not a kind of a gym, a, a gym person, just going out for a 10 minute walk. Uh, or going for a jog or going for a bike ride or you know whatever it might be that that can uh, that can really help with the biochemistry 
uh, and then mindfulness and meditation, which I have to say, I'm not a good, um, I, I'm not a, a good advertisement because I don't have a daily practice myself, but uh, I know the benefits of it and I want to get into a daily practice. If you can take some time out of each day just to clear your mind and go through a guided meditation, uh, that can really help as well. Yeah, well, <clears throat> I really loved how you talked about, you know, really listening, actively listening. And I think that's something I kind of thought about and connected to. I think it was Carl Rogers. So he's this like psychologist. And I guess the Rogerian kind of therapy method was really listening. And I think one thing that he pointed out was you can do so much with just listening. And oftentimes by speaking out about these about these mental health challenges, a lot of these um, people that these psychologists work with, their clients, can really work out their problems themselves. And really, I think a lot of people, especially with me at times, sometimes when I do talk to a friend or family member, I don't necessarily want their two cents. But I just want someone who can really listen to me, understand me, like you said, and uh, yeah, and just be there, be my rock, and and be someone I can turn to and for support. Yeah, that's a really important point. That that um, it, if you if you're seeing a therapist and that therapist is giving you advice, find another therapist. <laughs> Therapists should not be in the business of giving advice. Mm. They're there to give you space to talk and think, mm. and then yeah, ideally share some insights with you that you might not be able to see yourself because you're kind of locked locked into in, into your own brain mm. um but uh yeah listening listening is is everything listening is is such a i call it like a, the leadership superpower um listening yeah if if you're as a as a leader if you're uh, if you go instantly into problem solving mode whenever a, an employee comes to you you're doing that employee a disservice if you're trying to solve the problem for them you're disempowering them it's much more beneficial to the employee to, uh, to, to use coaching methods and just ask questions, ask curious, open-ended questions. And like you said, you know, you, in that way, you can usher the person along to finding their own solution. And the person will feel much better for having solved the problem themselves than if you've spoon-fed them a solution and then they have to go away and implement it. So I'm all about asking questions and listening uh, as a leader. That I'm, I'm not sure who this who came up with this um, originally, I think it might have been one of the ancient authors, um, one of the old Roman or Greek authors. But um, we have uh, we have two ears and one mouth, and we should use them in proportion. And that is a that is a nice little maxim that I always keep in mind. So, although I'm doing a lot of talking now, <laughs> um, I'm normally not not the biggest talker in the room. I'm normally the biggest listener. Absolutely. I've also, you know, had a lot of even though I'm a sophomore in college, I feel like listening is still something that like. I still tr struggle to like understand and make sure that I'm doing correctly. Um, and a lot of the reason is because I also struggled with depression, anxiety in my past, especially in high school, um, because I based a lot of my worth on academic mm -hmm. um, challenges. And it was very difficult to find, you know, people who would listen to me besides my like academic success. If I didn't do well in school, then they would just kind of pushed me aside it was mm. kind of robotic and it was like I was a stat and I would try to say I'm human first before I'm a student but a lot of people struggled to understand that because they've only viewed me academically so coming to USC and meeting so many professors that see me as a human first and listen to me first despite you know because there are days where I don't get assignments in on time or I don't do as well on an exam and they listen to me first which is something that I'm 
still not used to, If it's sad to say, but I still feel like a lot of students as well are just not used to it because of their environments or just being, um, just kind of viewing themselves as like a robot, as a, st- as a stat instead of a human being. So, you know, I just want to say I'm grateful to be at USC to have professors that think the way that you do and that kind of push that into our academic life to kind of humanize just the experience of learning. Yeah, I, well, I'm, I'm I'm sorry that you had, you had the struggles you did when you were when you were at high school, but I'm, but I'm pleased now that at USC you're finding that you're like you say you're you, you're you're meeting professors who are looking at the human first and then at the academic um, the academics afterwards. I I can tell you a, a bit a, a story from my own from my own experience that that is you'll probably that will probably resonate with you. So I went to a I went to a very um, a very kind of fancy private. Um, high school in the in the UK and it was essentially a kind of um, a production line for getting people into Oxford and Cambridge so it was just you know that they they would always advertise their, their their numbers of how many people each year they got into Oxford and Cambridge and like you I was just a stat I was one of those I was one of those products um, I got kind of shuttled along into to Oxford to do classics and um, and it was the most miserable year of my life and that's when I first suffered from depression. And um, there was such a high-pressured environment at Oxford. And this was England, which was famously repressive. And it was um, the early 90s, which was not a very uh, you know, progressive decade compared to where we are now. And so I, I struggled in silence. And I didn't even know anything about, the, you know, there was no mention of mental health resources, uh, counselling. Uh, there, there was no, pe- people didn't share their struggles with each other as peers. So I felt, uh, I felt completely, I felt massive imposter syndrome. I felt that I didn't belong. Um, I, yeah, it was, it was a miserable experience and I actually left and I thought, I, I just, I, I don't want to do this. So I dropped out and actually I took a year out um, and went and traveling and did you know, works and just kind of found myself. And then I went to a university in London that was, that was more, um, more relaxed and I was from London. So I was more familiar with it and it felt more comfortable, but um that whole experience, I wish I didn't have to go, th- I wish I hadn't had to go through th- uh, that. I wish that there'd been more of a human approach to guiding me as a high school student, um, rather than just shunting me along into this kind of, uh, onto this Oxbridge production line. So I can totally understand where you're coming from, uh, what you're talking about at high school. I, I went through a kind of similar thing, I think, by the sound of it. Yeah. Yeah. And what it goes to show you, sorry, one other thing, is that um, you, it, it, it's tempting to think that what's happening right now is the most important thing in the world, that the grades you're going to get at the end of this semester are just the be all and end all, or that that job offer, you know, from Goldman's or whatever you're whatever you're trying to do, none of that stuff matters, you know. It, do, it doesn't it doesn't matter. Your grades don't matter. Yeah, what matters is, are you a good human being? You're if you're a good human being, you'll find your way and you'll find your place and you'll end up doing what you're meant to be doing if you just listen to that inner inner voice um so if you you know if you have to if you have to take a semester out or you or you don't get grades you're expecting it's okay it's all part of the process it's all part of your flourishing as a human being i dropped out of oxford and look where i am now i'm a professor you know it's you'll get there so i think that's that's really part of the dialing down the stress message that i like to convey to all students is just just be here connect with people and absorb as much as you can and that's what you need to focus on focus on the process on the how 
Don't worry about the what. That will come later. Yeah, I think, yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. That was, it's nice to know that like, because you've talked to me about it, I know that I'm not the only person who went through something like that. I'd you say know? you're probably in the you're probably in a majority. Yeah, actually, but no, but one, no, no one talks about it. about it. Yeah. yeah. So thank you so much. For sure. Yeah, that. yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think one thing that I find really interesting that you mentioned was how you know when you really focus on the process, the journey, not the destination, right? As the saying goes, like happiness and all that. You know, it's like a it all comes together really well as long as you kind of focus on the on the process and yeah. really enjoying the the present moment. And I think that's something that I found difficult with even today um like i you know go into some kind of club meeting or went to one class and just you know really stressed about the next thing the next thing and the next thing but when you when i find really being in that moment and doing my best in the moment and having fun with it my days weeks years do turn out to be uh much more rewarding and and productive too so yeah, one th- one thing I'll say in response to that is that um, if, if if you translate this to to the workplace, all all of the the big you know the big names in in what I would call kind of popular organizational psychology, academic as well, but but they've reached the public conscious the popular consciousness like Adam Grant or um, Brene Brown, uh, Amy Edmondson, or even Simon Sinek. He's not he's not an academic per se, but they all uh, encourage people. Uh, to focus on uh, focus on process and on the how, and and they they suggest that leaders should focus on not on results, but focus on uh, on employees and how they're doing, because if you have a happy, uh, if you have a happy, fulfilled, inspired workforce, the results will come. Th- that that will follow. Focus on the people first, and so actually, Simon Sinek, there's one talk he one TED talk he gives where. He talks about the companies he's consulted with, and he he he's doing goal setting with them, like work, working out what their what their big goals, organizational goals, should be for the for the year, five years ahead. And when and invariably they come to him and say, well, we want to you know we want to uh, maximize our profits, or we want to uh, increase shareholder value, or you know all of these standard kind of business metrics. And he basically says, no, don't don't do that. Shunt all of those down. Your top your top priority, your top goal should be employee wellness and well-being because once you have that nailed the rest of the stuff will, will just happen and that mm-hmm. is that's something that i i live by too when, uh, when i manage uh, run teams and it, and it always works absolutely and that, that reminds me of another like simon sinek ted talk video i think it was like a i think he had a book called start with why mm. and i remember he was doing this like chart on the ted kind of podium and he was like People always focus on, or businesses always focus on innovation and the products themselves, the services, but they don't think about why they're doing it. And I think one really important thing he talks about was consumers don't buy the product. They buy why you make it, your brand story, you know, why are you, why do you even exist? Why are you making these things for these people, right? Why are you serving these consumers? So I think that that's also something really important that not only students, but also business leaders should should really take into account that's that's a great yeah that's a great ted talk and actually i i talk about that um with the doctoral students in the i think it's the first or second class um in the leadership class for the doctoral students and we actually spend a lot of time talking about the the importance of why and 
uh, in the program, you're encouraged as a student, and I was encouraging the, the, the students in the program to think about what your personal why is, because really everything else flows from that. Um, if you if you focus on, uh, you know, when you're thinking about career or like what dissertation you're going to do or m making some of these kind of pragmatic decisions, if you're if 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 you look at if you just look at the at the what or the how, you're doing yourself a disservice. Take a step back and think about like what why are you in this world? Like, what do you what do you want to do in this world? What 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 mark do you want to leave on uh, on, on the earth? And, and for me, I actually went through the doctoral program myself at Rossier a few years ago. And for me, that that asking that question resulted in a major career pivot. I I fell into IT as a kind of as a career after my uh, master's program back in the late nineties, and I was in IT for close to twenty years. And it was fine. Uh, I've always been quite interested in technology. I've always, always, always been interested in the what and the how of computers and, and software. But in this program, this was the first time I'd actually sat back and thought, well, why, what do I really want to do in this world? What impact do I want to have? And I realized after a lot of reflection that it was to make, uh, to make workplaces as pleasant as possible for people to come to every day. And so I developed this personal vision that I would like to see a world where nobody wakes up in the morning and dreads going to work. Like if, if we can achieve a world where nobody dreads going to work, we'll be in really good shape. And so that became my why. And so then that, that's when I developed my dissertation proposal all around how we treat each other in the workplace. And that's when I started getting involved in teaching, uh, how, to, you know, how, how leaders can foster those kinds of workplaces. I now try to foster that kind of workplace myself as a leader. So that unlocked everything else. And so now, every day what well, I'm, I'm yes I'm working um, and and doing tasks and doing projects and giving classes and so on but it all feels in service to my why that is the foundational piece and it makes it so much easier and for those 20 years being in IT I was kind of sleepwalking through life I was just like oh well it's kind of what everyone else in my class was doing we all just went and worked for IT companies you know think about your why now uh, and and then you can just chart your life and, and make a make a big difference Beautiful. Thank you very much. Um, so now we're going to go on to asking more about your personal life. So mm. we know that you moved from London to L.A. And, you know, there are a lot of students that move from their homes to universities and have a lot of stress and difficulties doing that. So we want to know if you could share ways to, like, kind of um, overcome moving to a new environment as well as dealing with the new challenges that come with that new environment. Sure. I think... Uh, I think the first thing I would say is find your people. Like that is the most important thing. And, and your people is, is, is deliberately very vague. It might be, if you've come from another country, it might be some other people who've come from that country so you can uh, share some common understandings of what it's like to adjust. Or maybe it's people who uh, also you know, support the same team as you or maybe it's uh, it, whatever it might be. Find some commonalities, the people who have... Who, who are the same religion as you, whatever it might be. Not, not to suggest that people should stay siloed and only associate with people like them, because that's a whole other podcast. We could talk about affinity bias and how people tend to kind of, uh, you know, hire people who look like them and so on. But th that's for another day. But I think it's important when you're adjusting to a new environment to find that social support in one way or another. And, and the easiest thing to do is to look for common linkages with others, whether that's nationality, 
race, religion, you know, whatever it might be. So that's the number one thing, find your people. And then, um, and then I would say beyond that, uh, look for uh, look for professional support. There's no there's no shame in in going to a therapist. I go to a therapist once a week, and I'm not in any kind of mental crisis at at the moment. But it's just a really really useful kind of top up every week, where somebody who can somebody can just listen and help me process what's going on in my life, whatever that may be. I think that can be immensely helpful, especially if you can find a therapist who has that understanding of the particular issues you might be going through. So whether it, if you can, for example, if you've, if you've come from another country, maybe finding a therapist who's also come from another country at some point in their life so they can really empathize on that experience. Or um, I would say, you know, if you're, if you're a black student and you're, and you're having um, issues experiencing belonging at uni university, find a black therapist who understands, uh, who, who understands things from your perspective racially. So find a therapist who gets you. Uh, I'd say will be the second thing. Those are the two main things. Find your people and then find a good therapist. Well, um, moving on, um, would you care to share like an experience you've had with imposter syndrome and how you were able to really work toward overcoming it? And uh, we think a lot of students do face imposter syndrome, especially at such a prestigious university as USC. Do you have any advice for them on how to best cope with that? Well, I've experiences of imposter syndrome. I mean, do you want one from this week, from last week, from this month? <laughs> <laughs> Whatever you're most comfortable which, with. Which is to say that, that I experience imposter syndrome too, and so many people do. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's, 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 the big, that's the big kind of dirty secret about imposter syndrome is that it can be this incredibly isolating uh, feeling and experience, yet it's one of the most commonly held, commonly experienced um, uh biases or or kind of bits of mental trickery that any of us uh, any of us experience um i think that to, to be concrete about my own experience i i definitely well i certainly struggle with um imposter syndrome at oxford university and um because i didn't i wasn't sure that i was i was cut out for it and that i was capable i was capable uh, otherwise they wouldn't have let me in but i didn't think that and i didn't have anybody like me then to tell me that it, uh, it's it's all bullshit yeah, pardon the language um it's just your mind playing tricks on you and, and i've had i've had it more recently too like when i first started teaching i had to go into a class class an online class of doctoral students and i thought what the hell am i doing here i'm how are they gonna believe me believe in me as a professor as someone authentic who who knows what he's talking about and my my uh, so yeah i experience it all the time and and my response to my my response to in, imposter syndrome in that situation was to embrace embrace it and be vulnerable and uh, rather than uh, pull away from it and try to pretend that I wasn't an imposter and put up this face of being this this omniscient professor who has all the answers I just said hey look I'm you know I'm, I'm new to this this is my first day uh, you probably know a lot more than I do about a whole bunch of these things I'm just here as this, as basically a facilitator to help you, to guide you through this learning process. So by kind of humbling myself, that, that made it more easy for me to deal with in the moment. And it worked out well for the class too. For students experiencing imposter syndrome, and I actually address, as, as TK will remember, I actually address this head on, on like literally day one of class. 
I actually tell the room, look, you're probably all, or at least a good number of you are, are wondering if you should really be here because you're worried that everyone else is smarter than you. It, it, it's nonsense. It's your mind playing tricks on you. You all are here because you deserve to be here. Um, so enjoy it. Just, just, you know, slap your brain on the wrist and tell it that it's just telling you lies. That imposter syndrome is, is, a, is a fallacy. Um, it's, so so I, I think I, I, as a professor, I like to uh, minimize it in that way. Um, if you're experiencing it, I would say just try and open up about it to others. Uh, because what you'll find is that uh, as soon as you uh, share that you're experiencing imposter syndrome, you'll probably have three or four other people will just be, yeah, me too, me too, me too. And, and as soon as you realize that, 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 that kind of sunlight becomes the disinfectant, right? It, it just, you realize that it's all just a myth, that everyone's just, and the myth only survives if we stay silent. Uh, it, it evaporates as soon as we start to share. I actually have a funny story about imposter syndrome. Oh, good. I can share. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, so actually, when I first came to USC last year, I met this girl who is now one of my best friends. But I've always I was kind of scared of her, very intimidated because she seemed to always have like everything down. Like she was always working and she just seemed very intelligent. And I thought that we could never be friends because I didn't feel like I was as smart as her or as put together as she was. But something happened where we both ended up in the same study room at some point, and she just put down her pen and she sighed. And I made a comment like, oh, I feel you, me too. And we both got into a conversation where she felt the same thing about me that I felt about her. Um, and it was just very strange because even though we were strangers, we just, uh, because we both felt the same way about each other, we kind of just had this hour long session where we spilled everything that we were feeling and just the stress and like how we feel like we don't belong. And now we're like best friends. We're sisters for life. So, you know, I feel like that just not staying silent about it will open so many more opportunities in your life than people think, because I still to this day, as much as it seems like I have, you know, everything put together or I have like new leadership positions or good grades, I still struggle a lot. So, you know, it might help you find your next best friend as well. That's a great anecdote, great story, and um, and I'll also share on top of that that you know I, I'm I might be an you know, an associate dean of this or a kind of you know professor or whatever, but I struggle too. You know, those those titles don't really mean anything um, when it comes down to my experience as a human being. Um, I still worry about stuff. I still get anxious. I still get depressed from time to time. You know that, um, and and that's okay. And I and I think the more we can show that vulnerability in conversations with each other, uh, the more uh, we'll all feel comfortable opening up. Others will feel comfortable opening up. Um, and once we can appreciate uh, our collective humanity, I think everyone wins. Right. And I think another thing too, it's one thing to like be vulnerable to others, but sometimes I guess with me especially. I can find it difficult to be vulnerable with myself because sometimes, you know, you may feel a certain way and know you feel a certain way, but you're not willing to acknowledge that you do feel a certain way. And if you don't really do that, it can be very difficult to confront it. However, you may do that, like come up with, you know, some actionable steps to, you know, relieve stress or, you know, manage stress. So I think it's also opening up to yourself and being confident that you can do this with the help of others, with the help of yourself. Um, 
Well, let me respond to that um, by tying this back to the what we talked about earlier about the um, compassion and gratitude. So I mentioned that a lot of the research suggests that compassion has all of these benefits, like um, you know, benefits to your mental health, physical health, and so on. There's a lot of research that talks specifically about the benefits of self-compassion, so going easy on yourself. So I would say try to bear that in mind in those moments where you're maybe being a bit hard on yourself or you're, or you, maybe there's some self-talk telling you that, no, I'm not really scared or I'm not really worried or just just know that if, you're, if you go easier on yourself, the research suggests you'll be better off for it on numerous, uh, on numerous fronts. Thank you for that. Yeah, I'll definitely <laughs> actively think about that. Just, <laughs> go- just Google benefits self-compassion research and then go crazy you'll see you'll see all the different results yeah of of benefits Mm -hmm. thank you for that i will definitely try practicing that in my life um but just moving on you know we just came out of a world pandemic and i feel like a lot of people had to reestablish themselves into society after isolating themselves and a lot of people have experienced a lot of hopelessness from that and you know just about who they are and where they are in the world and how it might affect their future so i want to know if you have any like advice or suggestions for anyone that might be struggling to maintain a positive um, attitude and hope about life in general and their future to kind of avoid them to falling into depression that comes with hope so yeah i i can i can talk i can talk about my own experience in the pandemic Uh, i was um i was in my online doctoral program and it was at the time when the deaths of to the COVID deaths in the U.S. were were at a peak, and it was it, it was really really troubling on so many levels. People were losing family members and friends, and it was really difficult to show up to class and and care about this stuff that we were we were talking about. It just seemed so insignificant in the grand scheme of things. Like the it felt like the world was going to be ending, and here we were learning about leadership theories. And it was really, it was really tough to, to, to stay focused. And the way that I got through that, again, just to come back to a common theme here, was, was through connection, um, was, was connecting with other people and, and sharing those thoughts and listening to other people's perspectives. So, so I think if, if, if someone is in a position where they're just feeling pretty hopeless about the future of the world uh, or hopeless about the current situation, you know, that kind of thing, uh, connect, connect with other people, conversation, and whether that's with with your friends or whether you know you can go to there. There are um, there are support groups that you can find online, but also uh, in person. The the power of sitting in a room and hearing other people's experiences and sharing your own is just is huge, and can really help pull you out of that that hopeless place. Uh, and then of course, if you find yourself drifting into the drifting down the hopelessness road to the point where you, you know you think you might be depressed uh, or suffering anxiety of course you know get get professional help and you know the uh, mental health and counseling uh, center uh, usc has lots of resources around that they actually have uh, group therapy um, uh, sessions which is something i didn't know about until recently uh, so contact them as a first port of call and they'll have all kinds of resources they can they can share with you but um, but certainly don't don't stay in your room and stay staying silent that's it can be tempting to do that and to get sort of stuck in that rut of isolation but push yourself out of it go and speak to someone or some people uh, whether that's professionals or 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 friends or like minds 
Well, just to work off that, uh, before we wrap up, are there any specific programs at Marshall or at USC in general or even just out there um, um, in the in the public domain that you think can really help students and, and people in general deal with mental health? I think um, I think beyond beyond some of those uh, what I would call kind of self-starting techniques like uh, finding your people, um, uh, exercise, mindfulness, meditation. Um, I I, th I think the um, the counselling and mental health uh, centre at USC that that is the gateway to really the latest and greatest of what's available to students. So I'd encourage going there. One thing I would say about Marshall students specifically is that. Um, we're currently, uh, we've been approved to um, to have a, uh, a dedicated Marshall mental health counselor uh, for uh, for undergrads, and they will be they they haven't been hired yet. The, the, the process is is ongoing, but at some point early in the spring semester, we're hopeful that this person, who will spend half their time at Marshall and will have a dedicated office actually in JFF. They'll be um, they'll be available to students for for mental health counselling, and you'll be able to make appointments with them. Um, they're they're at, they'll be employed by the mental by the um, counselling and mental health uh, student counselling centre, but they'll actually be um, uh, you know they'll be embedded within Marshall for half of their time for and their twenty hours a week or whatever it is. So that's something to look out for uh, for Marshall students specifically. That's amazing. I didn't know that was happening, but. Now yeah. that I do, I cannot wait yeah. for that to start. Yeah, stay tuned. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Patrick, for coming here and sharing your knowledge and valuable insights. And I just wanted to say that something that I'm going to take away from this conversation is just the importance of, you know, humanizing everyone and listening to people, you know, getting the conversation started and just sitting there and listening to them. Um, I can definitely see now after this conversation how much of a difference it can make in anyone's life if you just sit there and listen. Yeah, and I think the most important thing I would, I'd take away from this is really focus on yourself, focus on the process and everything else, all your results, everything will, will fall into place. Yeah, I, and and well, firstly, thank thank you for inviting me. It's been a, it's been a great pleasure chatting to both of you and getting to know you. Um, I will say on that front, the most important behavior, leadership behavior, I I talk to people about self-care. Um, there's an often used analogy that if you're a parent with kids on an airplane that's in trouble, you have to put your oxygen mask on first oh, before yeah. you put on the oxygen masks of your children. The same applies to leadership. You need to make sure you're okay first because then um, you because if you're not, you can't do the best job you can of taking care of the people in your charge because that's your job as a leader is to take care of the people who you work with. So um, uh, I guess... My, the one thing I would say I would end with is just a two-word, a, a two-word bit of advice that was actually the, the the um, was was in the kind of opening pages of my dissertation as an, in a, in a kind of dedication section to my daughter, and it's just be kind. Just be kind, and and so much will happen as a result. That's beautiful. Thank you so much, and thank you everyone for listening. And we can't wait for you guys to listen to the next episode. All right. Okay. See you guys on the next episode. Thanks so much. It's not a game. It's a red